Welcome to the Nation's Blind Podcast, presented by the National Federation of the Blind, the transformative membership and advocacy organization of blind Americans. Live the life you want. Hello, this is Anil Lewis, and welcome to the Nation's Blind Podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, my co-host, Melissa Riccobono, won't be joining me today, so I have a unique stand-in for Melissa. Hi, stand-in. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, I am Eloquence, and I am pleased to be co-hosting the Nation's Blind Podcast on Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Most of my friends are blind and use technology to access information that allows them to live, work, and play in their communities every day, so I am well aware of the importance of accessibility. Promoting global awareness of accessibility creates real opportunities for blind people to live the lives they want. Yeah, so maybe a little corny, but it still works for Global Accessibility Awareness Day. That's Eloquence, one of the many synthesized voices that blind people use to access information on their computers and smartphones, et cetera, every day. So it's only right that Eloquence should be my co-host. This is a special episode talking specifically around not just Global Accessibility Awareness Day, but a tremendous public-private partnership that the National Federation of the Blind shares with the state of Maryland. The state of Maryland has issued for many years now a non-visual accessibility initiative grant. And for those many years, the National Federation of the Blind has been the proud recipient of that support. It's a grant that's administered by the Maryland Department of Disability, and they have become tremendous partners to the Federation. Rather than me talking about it, I think it's probably best for me to play a message that we received from Secretary Beatty, Secretary of the Maryland Department of Education, describing in her words, our partnership. What do you say, Eloquence? Sounds interesting, let's take a listen. Hello, I'm Carol Beatty and I'm the Secretary of the Maryland Department of Disabilities. I bring you greetings from Governor Larry Hogan, Lieutenant Governor Rutherford, and the entire Hogan-Rutherford administration. I'm proud to share that the Maryland Department of Disabilities is the only cabinet level department in the nation focused on policy issues for all disabilities. The Maryland Department of Disabilities is charged with coordinating and improving the delivery of services to individuals with disabilities in the state of Maryland. By working collaboratively with all state government agencies, MDOD provides advocacy and guidance to ensure that state entities deliver services in the most integrated settings possible, that they develop consistent policies affecting those with disabilities and consider the diverse needs of all when making decisions which impact Marylanders. Our department is responsible for leading the creation and monitoring of Maryland's state disability plan. A state plan centers around five key pillars including one on accessible communication. For several years, the state of Maryland through our department has awarded the National Federation of the Blind a non-visual accessibility initiative grant to support the NFB Center of Excellence in non-visual access in education, public information and commerce. The purpose of the grant is to establish Maryland as a leader in non-visual accessibility by raising awareness of non-visual access, identifying current gaps in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, providing a vehicle for discovery of future gaps and creating training programs and resources to fill those needs. This model of public-private partnership enhances access for everyone and amplifies the state's commitment to accessible communication. We encourage all state agencies and private sector entities to actively include people with disabilities in developing solutions to structural problems. Our partnership with NFB on the Senate grant is a great example of how well it can work. Our department is also home to the state's information technology accessibility initiative. This initiative supports state agencies to meet Maryland's non-visual access standards. The IT Accessibility Initiative's purposes are to improve policies and practices in state IT procurement and ensure equal access to state agency information technology 
for citizens with disabilities. Our team of accessibility professionals work with every department to provide evaluations of technology platforms, technical assistance, and training on information technology accessibility. Our mission at MDOD is to change Maryland for the better by promoting equality of opportunity, access, and choice for Marylanders with disabilities. This initiative and our non-visual access grant with NFB continues to establish Maryland as a leader in non-visual accessibility. The Department of Disabilities is committed to the promise of a Maryland in which all people with disabilities have the knowledge and the influence to make a difference in their lives and the lives of others. We continue to work in collaboration with NFB and others to create a more accessible Maryland. Thank you, and we look forward to continued collaboration. So, Eloquence, what do you think? Nice. What a wonderful public-private partnership. What are some of the projects you have been working on? Oh, I'm very glad you asked that question. I'm going to take this opportunity to really talk about the breadth of work that we've been doing with our Center of Excellence in Non-Visual Accessibility staff. So, gentlemen, glad you're able to join. Introduce yourselves to our listeners. I'll go ahead and get started. So I'm Matt Hackert and I lead the Center of Excellence in Non-Visual Accessibility. Uh, I've been working here at the NFB Jernigan Institute for about three years now. A lot of exciting work, uh, all, all kinds of things from web accessibility to testing products and services, doing a lot of work in education and employment that we'll, we'll be talking about soon. Sounds great. Carl Belanger. Hi, I'm Carl Belanger. I'm a non-visual accessibility analyst here at the NFB and I work on any number of areas in access technology. I focus a lot on wayfinding for some of our projects and reviewing hardware and testing web accessibility and all manner of fun things. Excellent. Kennedy Zimnick. Great. Hi, I'm Kennedy. I uh, have been on the Access Tech team here at the NFB for a little over three years, three short years, three awesome years that have gone by <laughs> um, really quickly. I am the de facto low vision um, expert on the team, so I, I do deal with a lot of CCTV, uh, handheld magnifiers, and I also help out uh, with some of the embossing here at the NFB too. So yeah, great to be here, Neil. Outstanding. Great to have you guys. Your wealth of knowledge around accessibility helps us move the Federation's mission of creating more accessible spaces that much further each and every day. I just want to know that this team is an integral part of the National Federation of the Blind, working collaboratively with many of our members who, through their participation in our assets technology divisions, computer science divisions, web developers divisions, science engineering, just a host of our members who have knowledge, expertise, and lived experience that can help us continue to create more accessible products and services. The CENA, the Center of Excellence in Non-Visual Access, is also the house or houses the International Braille and Technology Center, where we have $2.5 million worth of access technology that blind people use to live, work, and play in their communities every day. But we're gonna focus on six pillars of the Non-Visual Accessibility Initiative grant that's in the spaces of education, employment, smart cities, our trainings that we offer, the Accessibility Fellows Program, and then our Accessibility Switchboard. So let's dive right in, gentlemen. Education is key. Uh, we recognize that without access to education, the opportunities for blind and low vision individuals is extremely limited. So that's why we focus a lot of our energy on making sure that the tools that are needed to make sure that blind students receive a quality education so they can learn and be competitive with their sighted peers exists. So under the Non-Visual Accessibility Initiative grant, we've done some interesting learning for ourselves and also some training because of COVID. Uh, in the COVID environment, everything has gone kind of virtual and it's made yeah. it more, more necessary for us to make sure those tools that are used for that are more accessible. Any comments? Yeah, I think it was a wake up call for mm -hmm. for a lot of professors and, and teachers that, um, well, it was a wake up call for everybody. Obviously, it was, you know, crazy times, especially for in, in education. You know, they had to quickly, while there was a global pandemic going on, teachers uh, and educators had to create first of all content they had to completely change their their course material and probably their syllabus to make sure that it it fit the virtual setting that it was now the uh, thing i thought that was very interesting is as we have continued to push for accessibility to these particular digital learning systems 
our desire to do that became ever more important because now everybody's more solely dependent on the fact right. that they need to be accessible. Right. And one of the things that I learned, well, we all learned when we were working with, say, specifically Google Classroom, a lot of people were saying, well, Google Classroom's not accessible. And they were doing it with some other products as well. But we realized that it wasn't a degree of accessibility. It was the fact that the technology and the way that we use technology has continued to evolve. And I think that one of the key learnings for me was that it wasn't that the technology wasn't accessible. It was just that now the interfaces and, and things that people use to interact with them right. were uh, needed a, a different kind of learning. I, that was the epiphany for me. I think that that was mm -hmm. Carl's piece that he pointed out to me. Yeah, he, he could probably make it make more sense to our <laughs> listeners than I just did. Certainly. So one thing, we, as Sunil mentioned, with these learning management systems and online document editing and things like that, so programs like Office Online and Google Docs, they don't behave like a standard web page for a screen reader. So especially for students who are younger or who are new any, for in, at, at any age, new to access technology, when they're just used to browsing you know, a generic website, be it the NFB site or their school's website, and now they're introduced to something like Google Docs where it has its own keyboard shortcuts. Some of it needs to be done with a certain screen reader features on and off. It's this whole other layer of complexity that a lot of students just weren't prepared for. And so we designed a training around that we called it beyond the web page and where we discussed and demonstrated how there are tools and techniques needed now to find keyboard shortcuts uh, and use this, these new internet based applications in a whole different way than a lot of people may be used to for navigating a standard web page. Yeah. And that was important, not only just for the students, but also the teachers, because they're going to be the ones that teach the students. So it was a really good resource that we had, like Lori over at MDOD, who's a blind person, but a parent of a blind child. And Matt, your experience as a blind person and a parent, uh, the same tools are also important for blind parents to stay proactive in the education of their children. What was your learning through this process? Absolutely. Thanks, Anil. Yeah, it, it was really critical. While Carl talked about uh, a lot of the platforms being used in education are accessible, but they require some new skills uh, for us to, to use as screen reader users, as blind parents. But it also involved some reaching out to educators, to my own children's uh, teachers, to let them know about the kinds of material that were uh, accessible to me as a blind parent of students in the classroom, uh, being able to access the material so, so that as a, a proactive and involved parent, uh, I could understand what they were learning. Uh, and, and some of the uh, software being procured or, or used in the school systems, th there are some access barriers. And so the NFB and the SENA staff have been working to eliminate those barriers to work with education companies where the software is not yet accessible to educate them on how we access their material and why it's important for the parents as well as the students to, to gain access to that information. And that's a key benefit of our grant because we did do a survey uh, working with our parents division to see what technologies out there were being used. We had the actual real input from Lori and, and Matt, et cetera, around what are the the uh, software packages that the school systems are using. And then we were able to assess whether they were accessible and determine whether it was an accessibility issue or a training issue. And as Carl explained, we dealt with that. And then in those instances where there was an accessibility issue, as Matt just talked about, we actually work with the developers to make sure that we can create more accessible experiences. Now, Kennedy, it's not just about making sure that the systems themselves are accessible. A key component of that is also the content. You want to speak to that? Yeah, LMSs like Blackboard or Google Classrooms, uh, learning management systems like that. Uh, if the content is, isn't accessible, for example, if you have an untagged PDF as your syllabus, or if you have a video of, of, of a chemistry lab that, that isn't very descriptive, um, you know, blind or low vision students are, are going to be left out and, you know, left behind in, in, in the class and in their class work. So creating accessible content is, you know, something that uh, we've 
really been pushing and we'll talk about boutiques in, in a little bit, but, you know, creating accessible content is, is a boutique that, that we're always putting on because it's, it's always important to keep updated with information and, and make sure that, that everybody's, you know, creating accessible content for everybody. And that makes the content better for not, not just blind and low vision students, but it, it makes it better for everybody, you know, universal usability. So. Exactly. And that's one of the things we love to enhance and, and really talk about that. We're not just creating accessible opportunities for blind people. We're creating a better multimodal experience for everybody concerned. And some of the key components you talked about there were making sure that graphics have alt text and we're looking at providing more audio description around some of the video content. Any other key factors around accessibility? Yeah, I, I think if you are a teacher, anybody who creates any content or document you know, uh, this isn't uh, a document accessibility podcast, but, you know, using good heading structure, um, alt text, like Neil just mentioned. And if you're using PowerPoint, just using the PowerPoint template, that, that'll get you 90% of, of the way there. Yeah, yep. that's a good point. I love our relationships that we have with a lot of the big major companies like Microsoft and Google. Mm -hmm. And we're encouraging them to make sure they build in the tools that as individuals use their products, they're actually able to create native content. So that's helpful. Carl, you had something? Yeah, I was just going to mention that also as important as either of these individual is kind of the interplay between these two aspects, the accessible platform and the accessible content. Because if, if you have perfectly tagged PDFs, Word documents with a heading, every alt text meticulously created, you know, and so on, but the platform to access them isn't accessible, then most of that work is going to go to waste because blind students aren't able to get at the content to use the accessible content. And on the flip side, even if you have the most accessible platform where every page, every link, every module that the course system has is perfectly accessible to the nth degree, but your downloadable PowerPoints have no alt text and your PDFs aren't tagged, that's going to be just, just as bad for a blind student. So it's really having both pieces of this. They're both very important and to work That's together. That's a really good point. And I think it's a really good segue to the next pillar. So we talked about education, a very good complement to that, that was really kind of built from, there's a movement called Teach Access, where the philosophy stems around, it's not that the content itself or making the products and the, the software accessible is the barrier, because we realize that if the developers know how to integrate accessible coding as they're developing the different software or creating the content, the cost becomes neutral, right? Because the amount of time it takes to create an accessible Word document is the same amount of time that it takes to create any Word document. Same with PowerPoint and developing the software packages. If you integrate accessible code as you're working, then the accessibility problems that may have resulted from someone coding incorrectly are mitigated because the developer is using the appropriate code. So the teach access movement, trying to move toward a philosophy of what's called born accessible, meaning things are just accessible from the start, not needing to be fixed on the back end to make accessible. All of this makes sense. But the practical way that the state of Maryland chose to introduce this particular philosophy and concept is to support the program of, well, the program that we call the Accessibility Fellows. And what we do with the Accessibility Fellows Program is we reach out to Maryland professors at the community college and university level who primarily are teaching classes to potential IT professionals. But we've also expanded it to teachers who are teaching classes in other areas because we recognize that creating accessible content in a variety of different educational spaces not only helps blind students taking those courses, but it also helps those sighted students in those courses recognize that they should have or take the responsibility to integrate accessibility into their work as they move forward in the world. So the Accessibility Fellows Program has really, I think, been phenomenal. Uh, we've had so many um, teachers that have come through. Any of you want to highlight any interaction you've had with any of the professors that we work with? Sure, I'd be happy to talk uh, a little bit about uh, Susan Vowles and uh, she teaches an information technology course that introduces students to among other IT topics, they talk a lot about accessibility checking and uh, web evaluations. And uh, we've had the opportunity on several occasions to participate in her class 
and uh, listen to students as they present about websites that they've run accessibility checks against and uh, talk to them, uh, especially Carl and I as screen reader users and to be able to demonstrate for them and talk about how this is a real world impact that the barriers that these tools show you aren't just abstract concepts and this is a check mark or a checkbox that got missed um this is low low contrast um or or this is an unlabeled button but we can demonstrate and, and we've done this in the past you know using screen sharing taking them through with a screen reader on a site uh, with an access barrier issue and how in in the real world this is how a blind person is accessing this and this is what happens when we encounter this barrier we we can't get beyond this point independently uh, we are now at a point where we either have to find sighted assistance where sometimes that's not timely or convenient but it prohibits us from fully participating with things that other people are are accessing all the time I think that's a real key component that we offer in this program. When we make the circumstances real, then it's not just a, a um, student right. trying to learn something in a matter of course. They recognize that this has a significant impact on the usability uh, by blind individuals. Just out of curiosity, what is your sense, either of you, uh, have the students found this to be challenging? Have, what, what has been their response to? We've done a couple of these presentations with Susan Val's class, and the most recent one, I was really impressed with um, how how the students uh, came back with their project. Uh, they had to run an automated accessibility testing on certain websites, and then describe the results they got, and you know how they impacted, and why they were issues. Um, so I was really impressed this this last time, especially with uh, you know a couple key groups that really stood out to me. So I, I think we are making a difference. And I think Susan, you know, really props to her being super involved in, in the fellows program and, you know, really taking it to heart to teach accessibility. And I think that's, something that's really important about that is the acknowledgement that this isn't deliberate or malicious ignorance. It's right. just that people aren't, unless you're exposed to have a, a close friend who's blind or a family member who's blind, people just aren't aware. And a lot of people just are kind of surprised by the fact that, oh, oh, blind people can use computers and can use the internet. Making it personal and making it real for folks is really critical. Yeah, I think it was powerful that, that Carl and, you know, I, I'm excited, but having Carl and Matt there and, you know, it might be the first blind person the students have ever, you know, interacted with. I think that was really powerful. Mm -hmm. And the exponential impact that we have as a result of this, I think is great because, again, Susan, being one instructor, has already uh, impacted many of her students through the classes that she offers, and those students in turn will really interact with other professionals as they move forward and help hopefully educate them. And then the products that they design as a result will hopefully be born accessible. Uh, one of the key reasons we focus on an accessible educational environment is because we want blind and low vision ind individuals to be able to pursue whatever careers and jobs that they have. So the third pillar that we like to discuss under our non-visual accessibility initiative grant is the area of employment. The National Federation of the Blind is definitely committed to creating education and employment opportunities for blind individuals, but the grant allows us to use our relationship with the state of Maryland to kind of be a model or a beacon for others to follow. And we consider ourselves experts in blindness, and we count on the expertise of people who are in vocational rehabilitation and in labor services to have the similar expertise in their field. And by leveraging the knowledge from all involved, we can create a better experience and better outcomes for everybody. So some of the things that we've done is create opportunities for these professionals to come visit our International Braille and Technology Center so they can see some of the technology that blind people used to live, work, and play every day. Now, under our NVAI grant, we haven't been able to do a whole lot of work, but we're just now getting to a place where we're doing something pretty creative. Uh, we're working with the American Job Centers locally to make sure that the devices that are available for everybody in those job centers is accessible to blind people. To their credit, they did that without our intervention, which I think, again, highlights how proud we are of the work that Maryland is already doing. But what we're doing to leverage that is we're making sure that we evaluate the third party peripheral resources that they may use. So if someone goes into an American job center to use a computer, they may tap into or be recommended to tap into a third party resource where many people they don't even take advantage of the opportunity of those relationships to encourage 
those third party developers to make their products accessible. But Maryland is and uh, our Cena staff is in the process now of taking a look at some of the third party softwares that our American job centers here are using. Any of you want to speak to some of the other work that we've been doing around ed education of uh, people in the employment space? Uh, sure. Like we uh, mentioned before, we do uh, monthly boutiques. And one of our uh, boutiques that we did, I think in October, was uh, we had an employment panel where we had employers from different companies come and discuss the process of hiring blind people, kind of the um, the misconceptions, uh, answered you know any questions that people had about employment as as it relates to blindness, things like any suggestions for best practices for attaining appropriate accommodations, what can and should a company do in advance so they are prepared when they come across a job candidate with a disability, and you know. For most, if not all, technology, there are accessible accommodations that allow a blind user to use the technology. I just wanted to tack on, we're, we're especially proud for this upcoming boutique. And we, on our panel, have uh, Kristen Patterson in particular, who is with the Maryland Department of Labor. So it's, it's really showcasing their commitment to improving the employment prospects for people with disabilities and with blindness and low vision in particular, uh, yeah. but really all disabilities. And again, it's really helpful to be working with the group that has already expressed a commitment and already some demonstrated success in creating more accessible spaces. So again, a very beautiful partnership. But employment is not in a vacuum. We can't address accessibility around employment in a vacuum. We have to address accessibility in a bigger, broader context, because it's not just about going to work. Uh, it's about being able to live in an environment that allows you to have a home life and travel back and forth independently to that job and experience some of the other peripheral engagements to make sure that we can interact with our peers. The fourth pillar that we'd like to highlight is the work that we've done around smart cities. So as we work at trying to make the cities that we live in more accessible, then we create organically experiences for blind individuals to get better education, better employment, and better quality of life. So some of the work that we've done around smart cities has been around specifically, we'll start with procurement. I don't know why I have such a difficulty in pronouncing that word, but I really love the fact that one, uh, the National Federation of the Blind of Maryland as a consumer organization and advocacy organization did a tremendous job on getting legislation passed for the state of Maryland to make sure that the devices and products and software that are purchased by the state of Maryland meet an accessibility standard. And that's that's half the battle, right? Because once we make sure that all of the products and services and technology that are acquired by the state are accessible, then it already de facto creates some accessibility. But beyond that, we also have partnered with the the uh, staff members uh, with the Maryland Department of Disability, specifically Stephen Palachek with the Maryland Department of Disability did a great job of presenting around the importance of procurement. And we're hoping to make that particular presentation evergreen. So as we build out more resources on our website, people will be able to look at that because I think that if we educate those procurement specialists on how important it is to make sure that as they're taking bids and making decisions on what to acquire, that those um, products and services are accessible. Uh, but specifically some of the areas that we've worked on are wayfinding, Carl, you want to give us the definition of what wayfinding is? So wayfinding is, you know, using a device to get information about your location and potentially routes to other points of interest. This can be outdoors, indoors, transition between them, generally navigating around your space. Yeah, and this can be done with separate devices, standalone devices. A lot of the work we've done have been with app-based devices. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to highlight something that was mentioned earlier. People continue to think that we're trying to create uh, devices and tools that are specifically used by blind people. But in our interaction, we're making sure that these services or devices, specifically around wayfinding even, are not only helpful to blind people, but helpful to everyone. In our evaluation of indoor wayfinding technologies, one of the things that we stated is as we create tools that blind people can use to say, let's go through a mall, right, to say you're here and you want to get to I don't know, Macy's, and it gives you turn by turn or, or step by step or whatever directions that helps a blind person get there. 
I venture to state that uh, this will be also something even sighted people will love to use because right now yeah. heading into the mall, looking at that big old thing that says you are here. And then this complicated <laughs> map of multi levels, most people don't do that anymore. Sighted people, you know, GPS devices, right? they're there. They have the maps. Very few people using them. They listen to the turn by turn directions yeah. to their benefit or their detriment. So I love right. the fact that we're working with that. Talk about some of the work that we're doing with some of our key players like Good maps and way maps. Yeah, so wayfinding has really come a long way, and the mapping. I'll take a step back real quick. Several years ago, you know, we started with this big wayfinding event here, where we had several different companies come and show off what was at the time state of the art wayfinding technologies, mostly using Bluetooth beacons, and it's developed from there. Uh, Wi-Fi fingerprinting and other technologies. Now with the latest technology from Good Maps, is one that we've been doing testing with, they use LiDAR and camera scanners to map the inside of the building. And then it uses your camera on your smartphone to detect where you are in a building and give you turn-by-turn directions based on what your smartphone's camera can observe of the building to get from point A to point B. We're also working with a company called Waymap, which uses very similar mapping, but rather than using a camera-based position, they use a known starting location along with you know, your stride length and pace to know where you are in a given indoor environment. And it can navigate you through, for example, Matt and I just recently went and did a test at a metro station and it could navigate in and out of elevators, along train platforms, uh, even so much as giving turn by turn, you know, turn 45 degrees to navigate around, you know, say there's a ticket kiosk that takes up the middle of a platform intersection. It can give you directions to navigate around that to get to the specific platform. So wayfinding and especially indoor has come a long way and I'm very excited to see where it's going from here. What's especially nice. exciting about that, too, uh, if I can jump in, uh, is, mm-hmm. is um, how that has evolved over time. Carl talked about, you know, it started out as Bluetooth beacons, which imposed a significant burden on building owners. But as this technology has evolved, it, that has become much more minimal to the point of maybe you need to have a crew come in at the beginning to just map the building to even the the, uh, camera itself on your smartphone being able to do a lot of that mapping. So it's taken away a lot of the burden from building custodians so that they don't have to worry about infrastructure to support beacons and things like that, whereas now the technology can judge the interior just as a sighted person would just look around and, and get visual information to map their environment. Yeah, agreed. It does reduce that burden. The other thing that I think that's important, our participation, I think, has made it possible for these individuals who formerly were developing applications that supposedly told the blind person where to go and how to go. And we've been really emphatic about saying it should provide information so that blind people can make decisions around their transportation journey, but even more so the desire for customization, right? Because I think that a lot of people think that blind people are monolithic and that's really not the case. The type of information or assistance Carl may need in using this app is probably uniquely different than the type of assistance or information that I may need, which is probably uniquely different from what Matt would require. And then also, you know, related to what we've been talking about, if Kennedy as a sighted individual wants to use these maps as well, he's going to require a different degree of customization. So Mm -hmm. again, I think that's the highlight of our continued participation. Another key component of the smart city space is we know that there's more and more work being done through kiosks. You know, uh, the mm-hmm. customer service is dying uh, <laughs> and they're transferring that responsibility over to technology in a lot of spaces. But we've been trying to stay in front of making sure that the kiosks that are, are being used are accessible as well. Uh, Matt, you want to speak to any of the kiosk work we've been doing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. One of the key groups that we have worked with uh, in the recent past has been uh, Ike Smart Cities, and they build uh, these touchscreen kiosks that they implement in cities 
on street corners to provide information to pedestrians about services that might be around the area, whether that be restaurants or social services or recreational activities. Uh, a sighted person can approach these big touchscreen kiosks and get information. However, a blind person walking by may not even realize that the kiosk is there, let alone be able to take advantage of the information that's accessible through them. And so Ike, uh, Smart City approached us to find out what are some ways that uh, they can make the, that information available to the blind population as well. And so we worked with them and, and talked about some solutions providing the same data available in kind of a parallel mobile app or, or website that a QR code can direct a user to through their smartphone and be able to use the existing technology on a smartphone, i.e. voiceover for iPhone users and talk back on Android. All of that technology was already there and it just needed to connect that with the specific information on the kiosk and, and that gets done through a QR code as, as I mentioned. Uh, so Ike Smart City worked with the team here and then we also were able to get them in contact with additional members through our build program, Blind Users Innovating and Leading Design. And they had a very successful focus group with other members of our organization, again, tapping into that lived experience of the blind to let them know what was most important and how best to access that information. Excellent point. We continue to stress that blind people need to be engaged in the full design process from the concept to design to development to implementation. And the Ike Smart Cities solution is unique because it doesn't require actual access to the hardware. But in some instances, say, let's say, hypothetically, a Department of Motor Vehicles that has a kiosk there that individuals who go through that space have to use it. Have we done any work in that space, Matt? We have indeed, Daniil, and uh, that's another kiosk. In fact, the company who built this particular kiosk has installed one at our location here in Baltimore. And it's and the ITI kiosk? Yes, it is. Excellent. Yes, it is. Uh, this is ITI, and people may not think of the blind needing to access the de uh, Division of Motor Vehicles uh, or Motor Vehicle <laughs> Association, but um, yeah. plenty of blind people have titles on vehicles and need to renew their registration and uh, the ability to access that in the same place with the same convenience that sighted uh, vehicle owners do is, is just as important. And so uh, ITI has worked very closely with us and with vendors who provide screen reading software that they have been able to install on their kiosks, uh, as well as tactile interfaces. So all of that uh, gets implemented together to make all of the transactions, be it um, registration renewal or scheduling tests for um, getting your driver's license so they could potentially schedule it, maybe not for themselves, but for a family member. All of that can be done now by plugging in a headset into these kiosks. Uh, and we continue to do further testing as they implement new transactions to make sure that all of the screens are being read properly and make sense that people can get directed to where cash comes out so that when they're getting their change or so that they know where to insert their cash or scan their card, all of the components of the transaction are accessible. Nice. And another area, of course, is point of sale. And uh, we had some really interesting interaction with a unique point of sale terminal. You want to talk about our ba 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 ba? I'm loving the collaboration. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> I can walk into my McDonald's and order a Big Mac. McDonald's kiosks have also become much more accessible. And again, with collaboration between uh, the NFB and with McDonald's and with Vespero as, as they're providing the screen reading technology uh, being implemented, uh, again, Storm Interfaces is providing a tactile kiosk or a, a tactile interface but also there's an accessible touch screen so that blind users have the choice of how they want to interact and order their order their McDonald's mm -hmm. breakfast or lunch. Yeah. And we have a good demonstration actually available that, that you can watch on online to see how it works. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Kennedy. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, um, and I think once other companies start seeing, you know, how successful McDonald's is going to be with their kiosk. I think we're going to be seeing kiosks, especially at food establishments, you know, 
more and more. So, mm-hmm. you know, our, our work here, I, I think other companies will look to McDonald's and, and hopefully look to their accessible kiosks and implement, you know, accessibility into their kiosks as well. Agreed. Now, another thing, uh, which I could have segued from your description of the ITI, but one of the other things that these kiosks and these public spaces will probably allow people to do is actually register to vote. So hopefully that'll make it possible. But then voting itself is important because the National Federation of the Blind has been working diligently to make sure that the process of voting safely, independently and securely is open to blind people as well. And we've done a lot of work around the accessibility, testing the accessibility, making recommendations of accessibility for a variety of different voting systems. And I think, Carl, you might be our resident expert in that space. Yeah. So, you know, again, pivoting with COVID back in 2020, a whole bunch of states all of a sudden had to rapidly (laughs) and massively expand their online vote or their absentee voting, uh, online registration and all manner of things surrounding that. And so, Accessibility became a hugely important aspect there. Yeah. Uh, and we have worked with several companies to prepare and help make accessible online ballot marking and even online ballot delivery. So ballot marking is going through checking off you know, the candidates you want on your ballot, making sure that it's exactly how you want. And then you can either print it out and mail it in, which many states require, or advocating for and it's very slowly starting to take hold is the actual ability to submit your ballot online completely electronically sign your ballot and everything and so that is ongoing work in a lot of places trying to get accessible online ballot delivery or ballot return to be fully accessible as well yeah that was a fun um that was a fun three or four weeks there where everybody was scrambling to get some sort of accessibility in their voting and we were just getting left and right you know states coming to contact the nfb for help so there's there's been a lot of contentious issues around security around identification but i think one thing that the nfb has strongly been able to demonstrate is the fact that it is possible to develop uh, whether it be a mobile app or, or some other means, but that all of the phases of the whole process from identifying who you are, that you are eligible to vote, to making your selection of the candidates and issues that you're voting for, to submitting and verifying that your ballot reads the way you want it to read, and knowing that it has securely been submitted to your state's election commission. Um, mm-hmm. all, all of those things have been powerful that, that the NFB has been proud to work with these companies to make possible. Making sure that the process is the same, the tools that we use are the same, and the resulting ballot that's cast is the same is very important. And we've also found that, of course, by increasing accessibility, we find some other peripheral benefits because speech access to the voting devices have allowed many voting precincts to not only create an audible ballot for blind individuals, but also ballots in different languages for other individuals. So, again, that's another way that our strive for accessibility helps everyone, not just blind individuals. So now I know that this is the part where we could talk forever and ever and ever (laughs) Uh, this fifth pillar that we operate on really is key. Uh, we offer boutiques, which are smaller trainings, and we have half-day trainings, which are deeper dives in some of the work that we do. So rather than sitting here talking for a week about this, why don't you guys think specifically about one particular boutique that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? But uh, let's talk about kind of the core half-day seminars. Uh, anyone want to speak to the, the core seminars that we'd like to try to offer? Sure, I can do that. The half-day seminars are once a quarter, and they go more in-depth into various topics. The first one, you know, we'd start off with talking about what is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG, how do you create an accessible website, how do you code it. Then following that, we'd go into the automated and manual testing, why you need both, how to do both, some of the tools and processes that they work with and then as you know related to web accessibility is document accessibility on producing accessible word documents powerpoints pdfs excel sheets all these things have very similar aspects and different aspects of web accessibility that apply to them and so we would cover all three of those areas in various boutiques and seminars 
And those are mainstays. Those are core fundamental learnings that everyone needs. And we never run out of enough people who really need to benefit from that. So as long as we continue to offer that, we continue to have an impact on creating foundational accessibility. Mm -hmm. So we offer boutiques to highlight specific utility of different software or products. Let's see, who'd like to go first? I, I can go first. We mentioned the seminars are really important, but, you know, blind people are all obviously people that like entertainment, too, and like having fun. So uh, we also, well, Carl mostly put on a boutique on accessible video games. Um, we also did a boutique on streaming services. So music streaming services, uh, on-demand TV, you know, like, like Hulu and Netflix, and then live TV as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to state that it's not just gaming. You're right. Blind people do like to have fun. But if you pay attention, many more places are using gaming for instruction. Mm-hmm. So if you work on making sure that gaming is accessible, then you already uh, step up in front of creating accessible learning content that uses gaming for learning. And the same with the streaming content. Streaming, one of the biggest ways we make things accessible is not only through the utility of the devices, but also in the content that's streamed over those devices. And again, in a learning environment, many more instructors are using video content for educational purposes. Just exactly. highlighting how this kind of interweaves with, with the other. Right. What about you, Matt? Yeah, uh, some of the other things that we've talked about have included collaborative services as well. Uh, what some, do you mean by uh, collaborative services? So, so these are some of the things like uh, I think the best example is Google Docs, where multiple people can work together in real time on the same document, and yeah. Google makes it possible now for for us to do that in an accessible way. So as a blind person, I can enter a Google Doc that my coworkers are also editing, and I can know that Carl is in the same paragraph that I am, and I can get alerts that he has deleted a phrase and changed it to to say something else. Uh, Likewise, as, as I'm moving through the document, Carl and Kennedy get alerted to where I'm at in the same way that Kennedy can see on screen where I'm editing in the document. Uh, so we've presented some seminars on how to do this with a screen reader, what techniques are a little bit different than how people, again, might normally be used to using the Internet with their screen reader. There's there's some new tools and techniques that we need to know about, and, and we provide that training for folks. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, we also talked about collaborative tools like Microsoft Teams, Trello, mm-hmm. and, and Slack. So those kind of bigger collaborative tools that have instant messaging, video call, you know, your your organization can purely work off things like Microsoft Teams and they're accessible as well. So, Yeah, and, and this is even more important, again, in this COVID or virtual environment. Right. Go ahead, Carl. Absolutely. And then uh, yet another angle we'll do is we'll do uh, talk about devices. I, you know, we ran a Chromebook accessibility boutique. Chromebook is very popular in education. And just like most of these other technologies, it has its own set of keyboard shortcuts and ways of doing things, which people may not know. So we've done that. And also in the area of advocacy, you know, we all come across websites and apps and programs that, aren't accessible or that have accessibility issues. And there are ways and strategies to report and engage with companies on how to make their products more accessible. So one boutique we did was a reporting accessibility issues to developers talking about how to describe problems you're encountering, how to get the information that the company will need to properly know how to fix the issue and you know provide a useful more useful report than it doesn't work yeah and that's very important because the way that this dynamic team no matter how dynamic cannot be the end-all be-all of creating accessibility in the plethora of um, web spaces etc so the more and more we can teach individuals to be their own self-advocates the better we can have a full court press on making sure that these uh, areas, spaces, websites, et cetera, are accessible to blind individuals. The last pillar, the sixth pillar I'd like to speak to, again, we could talk about training all day and hopefully we'll continue to offer even more dynamic training moving forward, is our accessibility switchboard. And just really briefly, the accessibility switchboard is an online portal 
that seeks to bring not only users, you know, blind and low vision or people with disabilities, users of technology into the same space with those individuals, companies, corporations, um, public institutions, educational organizations into that same space, but also those uh, web accessibility experts, you know, out there that can help everyone involved to create accessible spaces, train their staff. But it's that portal to bring all of us together to have those conversations, to provide that information. And it's being done, hopefully, in a way that's entry level, right? Because there's a host of information that's out there to speak to all of the things we've talked about. But sometimes it's written on a level that's more Ph.D. And uh, what we're trying to offer is more of a 100, 101 exposure to accessibility to make sure that people recognize that it's not an overwhelming hurdle to jump. And then uh, the supplement to that, which helps complement the information that we create in that space, is the development of our accessibility community of practice, which consists of representatives from all of those different groups, consumers, corporations, uh, public institutions, education, technologies, uh, experts, et cetera. And this we've been able to do through our relationship with Accessibility Track Consulting. I mean, Chris Law has been a tremendous partner with the National Federation of the Blind. Uh, we have kept the portal up and running but we're hoping to do something even more dynamic in the coming months. So please visit AccessibilitySwitchboard.org. Take a look at the information. Let us know whether it's helpful to you. Make recommendations on what you think we should add to that portal. And we'll continue to build it as a resource to make sure that we can leverage the knowledge of all those people who, who go to that portal in a way that helps everyone else. Again, um, this is only a snippet, just a, a little bit of what we've been doing. We treasure the partnership that we have with the state of Maryland, the relationship we have with the Maryland Department of Disability, uh, the support that's offered through the Non-Visual Accessibility Initiative Grant is instrumental in the work that we're doing, and it allows us to leverage our expertise uh, with so many other players in this space. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. It's been a pleasure to discuss our activities. We have accessibility boutiques every month, and longer half-day seminars every quarter, so we hope to see you at one of those in the future. Like I said uh, earlier, if you want to learn more about CENA, nfb.org slash CENA, you'll see you know everything we're doing there. And, and I, I hope that this points out, too, for, for people, um, really the capabilities of blind people. Again, the NFB recognizes that really the biggest obstacle to blind people is low expectations. And uh, I think a lot of the work that we do in partnership with the Maryland Department of Disabilities is helping to dispel a lot of those myths about the capabilities of blind people. Wow, sounds like you have all been very busy. Yes, extremely busy. I think it's important to reiterate, as said several times, that this collaboration not only creates greater access for people that are blind, but creating more accessible technology actually enhances the experience for everyone. And that's why we're proud of the work that we're doing with the state of Maryland, proud of the work that we're doing under the Non-Visual Accessibility Initiative grant. Well, looks like that brings us to the end of our Nations Blind podcast. Eloquence, do you have any final words? I have really enjoyed being part of the podcast. Please let me know if Melissa ever needs me to stand in for her again. <laughs> well, I don't think Melissa is going to have you stand in for her again because we have it on record that Melissa says that she's not going to give up this microphone for the podcast unless it's pried from her cold, dead hands. I'm sure she'll be back with us next time. But I do appreciate the Access Technology stand-in and I'm looking forward to working with all of you in the future. And until then, we want to make sure that we hear from you, our listeners. Uh, maybe you can share with us some of the things you've done on Global Accessibility Awareness Day, or maybe you have topics for our podcast in the future. You can reach out to us with a variety of different ways. I like to go old school, of course, as you know, feel free to call the National Federation of the Blind at 410-659-9314, extension 2444. The Twitter handle is Thank you for that, because the Twitter handle always throws me off. You can also email us at podcast at nfb.org. Look for NFB on Facebook as National Federation of the Blind. Exactly. We are on Facebook. So until next time, remember. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'd love your feedback. Email podcast at nfb.org or call 410 410- 659-9314, extension 2444.